Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm excited you're here with us today. You know, we live in interesting times. And while there are a lot of challenges all around us, there is so much good to be found in life if we can open our eyes and see that good. And I hope what we have to share today can remind you of some of that good. Our mission here at Open Your Eyes is to help us all open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And one of those realities is that you are filled with immense potential. And sometimes seeing things in a new way can unlock that potential. So today, wherever you're listening to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about what makes us happy. Exactly 20 years ago, from this very day that we're recording this podcast, just after midnight, a man walked up to a stately million-dollar home in Federal Heights, Utah, and used his long blade knife to quietly cut the screen on the kitchen window. Once past the screen, because the window itself was left open, the intruder soon found his way inside the house. Now, he knew the house. Eight months earlier, he had been panhandling in downtown Salt Lake City when Lois, a well-dressed mother of six, handed him $5 and invited him to earn more by working on the roof of her home. And Lois believed in helping people and wanted to give this man a break from the circumstances he found himself in. So he had taken the day job, and something about the house and the young girl in the house stayed with the vagrant. By inviting the man into her home, Lois would unintentionally make the biggest mistake of her life. Well, once inside the house that night, the man, still wielding the knife, made his way upstairs. He turned down the hallway and went directly to the corner room where two girls slept. The girls, 14-year-old Elizabeth and 9-year-old Mary Catherine, were fast asleep. They shared a queen-size bed. The intruder went to the side of the bed of the older Elizabeth, tapped her on the shoulder, waking her up. Elizabeth was startled and shocked and frightened and did as the man demanded, walking with him out of the room. She didn't know if he had already killed her parents or brothers, so she did as he said. And the younger girl, Mary Catherine, was also awake but pretended to be asleep because she saw the man and the knife thinking it was a gun. When Mary Catherine dared to open her eyes again, her sister and the man were gone. Well, Mary Catherine got up to go to her parents' room, but in the hallway, she saw the man with her sister, and she ran back into her room and hid under the covers. She said the man had long black hair and was carrying some kind of duffel bag and wearing a strange cap. He was about the same height as her brother. And she heard him say to her sister, Be quiet, or I will kill all your family. She stayed under the covers, listening to the chimes in the hallway clock. And after several chimes had come and gone, she ran to her parents' bedroom. It was now about four in the morning, and she shook her dad and said, She's gone. Elizabeth is gone. Ed sat upright and thought his youngest daughter must have had a bad dream, and sometimes her sister slept in other rooms of the house and he assumed Mary Catherine was confused. But as Ed ran from room to room, not finding Elizabeth, he heard his youngest daughter yell, you're not going to find her. A man came and took her, a man with a gun. Well, Ed immediately called the police, and within 12 minutes, the first officers arrived. 
In the meantime, Lois had discovered the open window and cut screen. Ed had called several neighbors and family members asking for help. You see, years earlier, a neighbor's family experienced a kidnapping attempt, and he was taking no chances. Ed said, Elizabeth's been kidnapped at gunpoint. Please help. And in minutes, the neighbors arrived. Well, unbeknownst to Ed and Lois and the police, the kidnapper and Elizabeth were not that far away. After leaving the house in the dark, the two walked through an adjacent empty lot, stopped to retrieve two large army bags, and started up a road behind the house. As they climbed the road, a car came winding down, and they jumped to the side of the road and hid in the bushes. It was a police car, and the man told Elizabeth, if you move, I'll kill you. As they walked further into the adjacent hills, and as the morning light came, Elizabeth got a good look at her kidnapper. She'd seen him before. She remembered him as the man hired to do the handiwork at her house. Well, soon they were scrambling up a steep hill, and several times the man repeated his threats. If you run, I will catch you. I will kill you. I have friends, and they will kill your family and your sister. Together, they climbed the ridge and descended into a steep canyon and soon arrived at a makeshift camp. Well, the camp was a series of tarps and tents, and there was a large eight-man tent, plastic containers, kitchen utensils, and other items scattered about the camp. A woman, whom the man called his wife, took Elizabeth, pulled her into the tent, and it would only be a matter of minutes before the man came in and raped her for the first time. Back home for days, hundreds of people volunteered to search city dumps, neighborhoods, and target areas searching for Elizabeth. In total, 1,800 people would volunteer in those first few weeks of searching. But despite following leads and chasing every possible avenue, they found very little that helped them find Elizabeth. During the first week of her captivity, Elizabeth was hungry, in pain, and living completely in fear. Fear that her kidnapper would once again rape her and fear that she would never return to her family. And as the days passed, she started to realize that this may be her new way of life. To imprison her, Elizabeth's kidnappers bolted a steel cable to her ankle. And the cable reached far enough for her to get to the latrine and tent. And one day, as she was chained in camp, she heard a voice calling, Elizabeth. Then a second time, she heard it again. It sounded like her uncle's voice. The kidnappers heard it too and told her if she made any sound, they would kill her. Soon the calling subsided and she was left brokenhearted. Well, for months, Elizabeth was held captive. She was taken to California and then back to Utah again. And while traveling by bus, they were waiting at a bus stop when two police cars came up and parked behind and in front of them. The policeman walked up and the police officers questioned the man and his wife. They repeatedly claimed Elizabeth was their daughter, and one officer asked Elizabeth her name, but she was terrified to answer. She didn't want the man to carry out his threats. So the officer stepped aside and talked. Then one of the officers came over to Elizabeth, pulled her aside, and he asked, what's your name? She didn't know what to do. He said, are you Elizabeth Smart? Because if you are, your family has missed you so much. They want you back. They want you to come home. She then answered, I'm Elizabeth. Immediately, the man and his wife were arrested, and soon Elizabeth was taken to the police station, and there she waited. Then the door to the room in which she was sitting flew open, and her dad walked in. He hugged her and said, Elizabeth, is it really you? Soon she was reunited with the rest of her family. 
In total, Elizabeth was abducted and held against her will for nine months. She said, Physiologically, I was tattered. I had been tortured for months, deprived of water, deprived of food, treated like an animal, no privacy, no hope. I lived in constant pain from being abused and cabled to trees. I had been threatened and manipulated every second of every day. But now she was finally home, and the first thing she wanted to do was take a bath, something she hadn't done since being abducted. So she did. And the next morning, her mother stopped her at the top of the stairs and said to her, Elizabeth, before it gets too crazy, I want to tell you something. And this is important. Elizabeth looked right at her mom. Elizabeth, what this man has done is terrible. And there aren't enough words that are strong enough to describe how wicked and evil he is. He has taken nine months of your life that you will never get back. But the best punishment you could ever give him is to be happy. Her mom went on. You be happy. Don't let him take any more of your life. Keep every second for yourself, and God will take care of the rest. Today, Elizabeth Smart is an activist for missing children. She's happily married. She and her husband, Matt, have three children, Chloe, seven, James, four, and Olivia, three. She said, I'm happy today and feel so lucky to have found my husband and best friend and to be the mother to my three babies. Now, You and I won't ever, God willing, experience something similar to Elizabeth. But in small ways, we all have mistakes and have had circumstances we wish we could put behind us. And we may even have times in our life we want to forget. And if so, we can remember Lois's words, the best thing you can do is be happy. Happiness is a choice, and we can choose to be happy. Elizabeth said, therapy and a host of other things have helped me, but ultimately to get better, I simply made a choice. Life is a journey for all of us. We all face trials. We all have ups and downs. All of us are human, but we are also the masters of our fate. We are the ones who decide how we are going to react to life. So happiness is a choice. And if it is, then how do we choose happiness? And in the end, what is happiness? So to begin, let me ask you a simple question. What would make you happier? A better relationship, new job, losing weight, looking younger, relief from your chronic pain or sickness, more money, more time? Well, luckily, happiness is one of the most researched and analyzed topics of psychology and social science. And while we can't cover all that research here today, we can learn a little bit about happiness from a data-driven point of view. Recently, researchers at UC Riverside published a comprehensive summary of research done on happiness. And here's what they learned. When determining what causes our happiness, 10% of our happiness is dependent on circumstances. What are circumstances? Well, things such as your annual income, marital status, job, where you live, whether you look young or old, whether you have a college degree or not, and so forth. And the research says that these types of things only influence 10% of our happiness. A well-known study by three researchers titled Happiness of the Very Wealthy shows that the richest Americans, those who earn more than $10 million annually, reported happiness levels only slightly higher than people with average income. In similar research, 
Married people report a slightly higher happiness level than single people. In research, 25% of married people and 21% of single people say they are very happy. So in short, circumstances such as wealth or marital status only impact our happiness in small ways. Now, with only 10% of happiness dependent on circumstances, what are the other contributing factors? Well, the next factor, researchers called the set factor. They said that 50% of our happiness is set. What does that mean, that it's set? Well, it's kind of like body shape or weight. You know, some people have a higher metabolism or naturally seem to stay within a narrow weight range. Others of us tend to gain higher amounts of weight and gain and lose in a wider range. And you would say that your weight level or body shape is largely set, and then you vary from that inherited set. But that set determines a significant amount of your weight. Well, likewise, happiness is heritable and extremely stable over the course of people's lives. That means we get more from our parents than eye color and facial features. We may get a large set of our happiness from them or from others. How we grew up or who we have interacted with throughout our life does dictate our level of happiness. And this may be hard to hear, but it's proven. Research has proven that 50% of your happiness is heritable. So, what do you learn from this? Well, some of us may have inherited a lower level of happiness, and we then have to compensate for what we've inherited, right? The other lesson may be that we pass happiness on to our kids and family. And I argue to those with whom we live or work over a long period of time. So, we serve others when we choose to be happy because we're passing on happiness, a great blessing to them. You know, recently, Taylor Swift was honored with an honorary doctorate degree at NYU's graduation ceremony, and she gave a speech at that ceremony. And it's worth reading the transcript of her speech. She attributed her outlook in life, her happiness, to her parents and brother. And here's what she told the graduates. She said, part of growing up and moving into new chapters of your life is about catch and release. What I mean by this is knowing what things to keep and what things to release. You can't carry all things. So decide what's yours to hold and let the rest go. Oftentimes, the good things in your life are lighter anyway, so there's more room for them. One toxic relationship can outweigh so many wonderful, simple joys. You get to pick what your life has time and room for, so be discerning. Well, you can tell she knows a bit about happiness, because the good things in life are lighter, and there is more room for them, and the toxic things do weigh you down. She continued, My experience has been that my mistakes led to the best things in my life, and being embarrassed when you mess up is part of the human experience, you know getting back up and dusting yourself off and seeing who wants to hang out with you afterward and laugh about it? That's a gift. The times I was told no or wasn't included or wasn't chosen or didn't win or didn't make the cut, looking back, it really feels like those moments were as important, if not more crucial, than the moments I was told yes. Well, my sense is that Taylor got all 50% of her heritable happiness. And perhaps that's been more important to her happiness 
than her professional success. Now, if 10% of your happiness depends on circumstances and 50% is set or heritable, then what about the remaining 40%? Ah, now we're at the crux of the issue because the remaining 40% of our happiness is dependent on intentional activity. Now, the definition of intentional is done by design. In other words, you think thoughtfully about it. You make a plan and deliberately follow that plan. Now, have you been intentional about your happiness in life? I mean, do you have a happiness plan? Well, to help you with that plan, let's tune back into the research and see what things happy people intentionally do. Would you like to know what those things are? Well, first, researchers found that happy people are deeply committed to lifelong goals and aspire to something worthwhile. Now, some of you may be thinking, really? Goals matter to my happiness? Well, I would say goals do matter, but what really matters is aspiration or the pursuit of something worthwhile. So why does aspiring make us happy? Well, here's a simple example. There's a difference between a father who lets his day or his fathering go in any direction versus a father who aspires to raise exceptional children. The aspiration to be exceptional in his fathering causes him to think, to figure, to give of his time and his heart, and to model better behavior and take joy in his children. And interestingly, commensurate with his added effort comes added joy in his fathering. The aspiring father learns and grows and pays attention and develops values and love that the other fathers might not ever develop. You see, people with aspirations have higher energy levels, stronger immune systems, stronger mental health, and feelings of self-confidence and self-esteem. So what's the lesson here? Well, whatever you're doing, aspire to something worthwhile in that thing. If you're married, aspire to serve your spouse, truly. If you're coaching youth basketball, aspire to bring joy to the kids. If you're working, aspire. Own a business, aspire and you'll find greater happiness. Next principle. Benjamin Franklin said, happiness consists more in small conveniences or pleasures that occur every day than in great pieces of good fortune that happen but seldom. Researchers have found that happy people are extremely comfortable in expressing gratitude for all they have. They notice the small good things around them in life. You know, I have a very good friend and her everyday language is full of the good things she sees and loves and does in life. She has a habit of speaking these good thoughts out loud. And as a result, all of us around her are the beneficiaries of her disposition. She has a lot of happy days. And imagine if you and I became people who talked more about the good around us each day, the good people, the good experiences, the good we see. Imagine what we could pass on to our children. We would pass on the habit of happiness. You know, one of my favorite research studies was done by the happiness pioneer, Dr. Martin Seligman, a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. He was testing the power of various positive psychology interventions on about 400 participants. Each week, he tested an intervention and then measured the results. One week, the participants' assignment was to write, and personally deliver a letter of gratitude to someone 
who had never been properly thanked for his or her kindness. What was the result? Well, participants immediately exhibited a huge increase in happiness scores, and he discovered that this intervention had a greater impact than any of the other interventions tested on the participants. In another study, researchers at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania randomly divided university fundraisers into two groups. One group made phone calls to solicit alumni donations in the same way they always had. But the second group, assigned to work on a different day, received a pep talk from the director of annual giving, who told the fundraisers she was grateful for their efforts. And during that week, the university employees who heard her message of gratitude made 50% more fundraising calls than those who didn't. You see, finding the good in small things in life has power. It has the power to make us happy. Next, the research suggests another intentional way to create happiness in your life. Happy people make physical exercise a weekly and even a daily habit. Why does this cause happiness? Because the way you feel physically impacts your happiness. When we exercise, the body releases chemicals that boost your sense of well-being and suppresses hormones that cause stress and anxiety. And among the chemicals released are endorphins and serotonin and dopamine neurotransmitters, which are related to pain and depression emotions. The Cleveland Clinic reports that exercise is a recommended treatment for depression. Because in randomized trials, it shows that people who exercise suffer less from depression. Next, happy people devote a great amount of time to their family and friends, nurturing and enjoying those relationships. Now, to nurture is to care for and encourage. And I personally believe that love that comes from that nurturing brings happiness. Because someone you truly love can bring happiness to your life. Now, another characteristic that researchers found in happy people was this. Happy people may become just as distressed and emotional in difficult circumstances as you or I, but their secret weapon is the poise and strength they show in coping in the face of challenge. That poise allows them to find positive outcomes. You know, my father's this way. Whatever distressful situation comes along, he expresses optimism and displays strength. He was a fighter pilot, and I always imagined that he had such extreme stress and circumstances in that job that after that, he could handle just about anything. You know, it reminds me of the news story we recently heard. A few months ago, Darren and his friend had a trip to the Bahamas to go fishing. And they had a great trip, and on their way home, Darren was sitting in the back of the plane with his feet up. The plane was a single-engine Cessna, and they were flying back to Florida. Well, suddenly, the pilot turned around and said, Guys, I got to tell you, I don't feel so good. He said, I got a headache, and I'm fuzzy. And when Darren asked what he needed to do, the pilot didn't respond. So Darren climbed up to the cockpit, and the minute he did, he saw that the plane was diving and fast. What he saw out the front window was water. So he reached over the slump body of the pilot and gently pulled back on the stick. The plane leveled out. Then Darren and his friend moved the unconscious pilot to the back of the plane, and Darren sat down in the pilot's seat. Darren had never piloted a plane before. He put on the headset. He reached air traffic control in Florida, and they asked for Darren's position, and Darren didn't know. He said, 
I don't know, but I see the coast of Florida and I see a small airport. When I was flying and saw the state of Florida, at that second I knew I'm going to land there, Darren said. I don't know what the outcome's going to be, and I don't know how it's going to happen, but I knew I'm going to have to land this airplane because there's no other option. So, air traffic control started coaching Darren into a safe landing at Palm Beach International Airport. As he descended to around 200 feet, Darren said air traffic control told him he needed to slow down. At that point, I told the other guy, hey, take the throttle and dump it on the floor. Just dump it on the floor as far as it will go, Darren said. So he did. Then, with additional coaching, Darren piloted the plane onto the runway, and the plane touched down safely. I said, thank you for everything, and I threw the headset on the dash, and I said, the biggest prayer I've ever said in my life, he said. But the last part of the prayer, the strongest part of the prayer, was for the guy in the back seat because Darren knew he was not in a good situation. Darren really did have a happy landing. So I agree with the researchers. I believe that happy people see the best, even in the toughest situations. They're empowered with poise and optimism. And I hope that as you face challenges in your family and business and personal efforts, that you can hold on to your optimism that will land your ship safely and happily. Remember, as the good author once said, someday you're going to come up against something you don't think you can do. And then you do it. And then you know the real you. Next. The researchers found that happy people are often the first to offer helping hands to co-workers and passers-by. You know, the Chinese have a saying, if you want happiness for an hour, take a nap. If you want happiness for a day, go fishing. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help another person. Recently, Time Magazine reported on a research study using MRI technology. And using this technology, researchers wanted to see what parts of the brain are activated when we engage in true giving or service. And they found that giving activates the same parts of the brain as food or pleasure, meaning we get the same endorphins from service. Be apt to serve. Now, we started this podcast by saying that happiness is a choice. And I believe that's true. We can, in any circumstances, choose to see the good, and to be happy. We can see the good that's in our life and be grateful for it. You know, I found that people who have faith are largely happier, not because God magically makes them happy, but because things may not be ideal in a relationship or in their circumstances. But when they reflect on where they stand, they see that they have their love for God and possess His love for them. And this view, this faith, has the power to make them happy. And by the way, I believe like happiness, faith is heritable. You pass on faith to your kids. I also believe that when we're humble, we're happier. Because when you're humble, you give up the need and the stress to be better than or maintain your position. You can simply do your best, expect nothing in return, and appreciate everything. Humility causes you to be grateful at means you realize life is full of imperfections, and that includes your life. But being happy doesn't mean everything's perfect. It means you've decided to look beyond the imperfections and see the good that exists in you, in others, and in life. Now, I'm not a big country music fan, but I am a fan of Tim McGraw, and I've always liked his song titled Humble and Kind. Some of those lyrics say this, Hold the door, Say please and thank you. 
Don't steal, don't cheat, and don't lie. I know you got mountains to climb, but always stay humble and kind. Don't expect a free ride from no one. Don't hold a grudge or a chip, and here's why. Bitterness keeps you from flying. Always stay humble and kind. Don't take for granted the love this life gives you. When you get where you're going, don't forget, turn back around and help the next one in line. And always stay humble and kind. And maybe, perhaps, that is the best formula I know for being happy. So, as we end today, as Elizabeth said and knows, the best thing you can do in life is choose to be happy. And when you do, you magnify the good and diminish the bad that comes your way. Remember that only 10% of happiness depends on circumstances, and 50% is heritable. So be the person who sees, talks about, and shares the good in life because you can pass on the habit of happiness to others and be a blessing to them. And focus on the 40% of happiness that is intentional. And be deliberate. Have a plan for happiness. And that plan can include aspiring for good in what you do, focusing on the small things in life that bring you joy, staying poised in tough situations because good will prevail, exercising, serving, having faith, and being humble. And watch, you will be happy. Most of all, thanks for tuning in today. And please share this podcast with a friend. They need to find a bit of happiness as well. And we'll see you on our next podcast as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become.